Hello and welcome. It's another podcast from your friends at Books of the Year. Uh, it's just me. Well, there's obviously uh, authors and stuff. But Matt, <laughs> uh, he he's read all the books, so he claims. Uh, but then something's come up. It's one of those. Yeah, I know. Problems at work. There's a horse that's ill or something. I don't know what it is. But he sends his apologies. I mean, it's a little bit annoying to be perfectly honest. But anyway, so so Matt's not here. But it doesn't matter. It absolutely doesn't matter because we have another Matt, Matt Haig, who's going to be here uh, talking about his new book in just a moment. Anyway, you might like to know that we've launched a new thing and it's a bit like Jack and Ori. It's one for our older listeners. It's called Pick Any Page, right? Where uh, each week the authors we have on this podcast pick a page from their new book and we film them reading it so that you can get a taster for the book and you can see what they look like because all authors are gorgeous. So you can check out, I know, don't answer back, check out our Instagram slash pick any page. Uh, We've been tweeting links and if you follow us on Books of the Year on Twitter, you've no doubt seen some of them. So uh, we've already done uh, Jeanette Winterson reading from Frankenstein. Uh, Emma John, reading from Wayfaring Stranger. Uh, And soon to join them will be Matt Haig and also Chris Norton, who's an Egyptologist. Uh, So this is what you need to do. It's on Instagram slash pick any page. And if you follow us on Twitter, uh, Books of the Year, you will get all of these. But it's a very entertaining thing that we've come up with. uh, And you should should look at it and then review it. And that would be a nice thing. Thank you. Because we put a lot of work into it. So don't just sit there. Uh, well done, we should say, to Cressida Cowell uh, on becoming the Children's Laureate. She's very excited about all the work she's going to be doing uh, for that. You can hear her on this very podcast if you check out our old shows on iTunes or ACAST.com. Um, uh, I'm not interested. There are some people who suggested that I should be lined up for the next Children's Laureate, but frankly, uh, I'm not interested. If you disagree, you can tweet at her Madge, and she always answers. If you DM her. I think that's the thing. Uh, and Helen Russell, rhymes with muscle, uh, says, just on the Jeanette Winterson thing, I don't want to just learn something. I want my heart to be affected. So I'm with Jeanette Winterson on this. In fact, I am on most things. Well worth a listen. Uh, and Books of the Year has excellent taste, according to Helen, who is one of our favourite listeners. Uh, if you would like to get in touch... <clears throat> Excuse me, that's a bit rough. If you'd like to get in, I'm having to work twice as hard, you see, because Williams isn't here. Uh, If you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet us at Books of the Year and you can email us at booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Meantime, here comes an author. (laughs) Okay, so here we go with our conversation with Matt Haig, who uh, is never content with just one book. (laughs) So Evie and the Animals uh, is the new book. It says from the number one best-selling author. That'll be you, Matt, by the way. And I was just settling in uh, to that. And then a large envelope arrived and had another Matt Haig book in it. Uh, And this is The Truth Pixie Goes to School. Which Which is a very short book, Simon. So that, yeah, I mean, it's essentially a poem. It's a 3,000 word poem. And it's, yeah, I mean, it is technically a book, I suppose. But it's not one of the, it's not War and Peace, is it? No. It but, it's a, but it's a delightful 3,000 word book. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. But the, the, the book of substance, then, is Evie and the Animals, illustrated by Emily Gravitt. So this is the, is this the same target age, Matt, as your Christmas books? I am really rubbish with target ages and knowing what age 
and I'm not really a fan of um, target ages with kids because I, I understand there's a lot of sensible reasons, there's a lot of marketing reasons why we have age banding. But I think that when you're when you're say 11 years old. You don't necessarily want to read a book that says eight to twelve year olds because you think, oh, is that, you know, you, mm-hmm. you, you you kind of want to read above yourself. Well, I I I certainly would have done at that age. So, but I think I think in in bookshops it's like eight to twelve. It, it's for it's me, sort of there really to advise book yeah. buyer really. Isn't I, it? I suppose it is, and I suppose um, yeah. What what are your uh, kids' books? Are they more teeny? Are they older? Well. Again, the the first the itch books were pri- mainly primary, uh, top end of primary, first yeah. year of secondary. So yes, eight eight to twelve. But I I thought of them as much older than that. And then Blaine was a YA book, so it's definitely teen. And then and then it's adult, so I'm flipping <laughs> all over the place. But the yes. thing the thing that the thing that sends out the message, apart from what you've written, is the artwork. Yes, I, I and think that's true. Or, you know the the mess the book cover which has got Evie and the animals on a park bench, a dog, a cat, and a lion, uh, says 8 to 12. Yeah, it doesn't say... It's definitely not teenage. It's definitely younger than teenage, although, you know, hopefully there's one or two teenagers who'd enjoy it. But it's... it's um, Yeah, well, it was... I'll tell you what it is. It was written for my daughter. My daughter is 10, and she was just turned nine, I think, when I was writing it. And I, I literally went to my daughter and said, what do you want me to write about? Because what do you I do did requests? This. Well, I don't really, but because I'd written the Christmas books for my son, because my, my son had asked me um, a question about Father Christmas being a child. And I thought, well, that's a, that's a good idea. Um, and then in events, in children's book events, and even a few adult book events, I've always been talking about my son uh, as the root cause of that. And so my daughter doesn't end up in therapy and with issues of sibling rivalry. Mm-hmm. I felt diplomatically, Pearl, what do you want me to write about? And she said, animals, a girl who's sort of friends with lots of animals. And then, uh, you know, I came up with just telepathy being the thing. So it's kind of a telepathic... That's not as good a steer as your son. Them. So your son saying what was Father Christmas like as a as a child, instantly you go, that's the whole thing. <laughs> yes, that's, I know. That's, that's a whole book. A girl who's interested in animals... Yeah, could I know. Not, not, I know. not as good. So, no, exactly. Sorry, it's not, it's not, as, not a one-sentence cell. You had to work harder. I had, to, I had to do a little bit of um, legwork on that, um, which means I owe her less royalties than I, I do my son, probably. But... It, yeah, no, it's fun. I think I think writing a book with talking animals in it is always going to be fun. As soon as you've got, especially if you've got more than one species. Tell us about Evie first. Evie is a uh, girl who's got this condition, and she she's known she's had this condition for quite a while, where she can hear the thoughts of animals and even communicate without moving her mouth with animals. Um, but the trouble is that this super talent. She is told by her father, her mother's died um, before the story starts, she's told by her father that she can't use it because she will get into all kinds of trouble. And he doesn't specify what trouble it is. But then when she does start using it, like the first instance is when she frees a school rabbit from its too small hutch and gets into trouble for that, um, slowly 
bad things start to happen. Uh, bad things that are related to her past, related to her mother's death. And um, yeah, e even her own identity isn't something that she's totally certain of at some, one point in the book. Oh, so much angst already. I angst. Mean, just... <laughs> I can't, I, yeah, I try and write these. I, write I originally write book. children's books <laughs> to cheer myself up. But it's like with the Father Christmas ones. First time I did the first draft of the Father, first Father Christmas book, my editor at Canongate um, said, why have you made Father Christmas a depressive? And I didn't mean to. But there seems to always be um, angst. I think hopefully, especially with the children's books, I think I like to think of myself as a hopeful writer who puts hope out there. But I think like to get to the hope You've kind to you have to work acknowledge the darkness of things. Yeah. Okay, well, well, maybe illustrated by the fact that in your answer to that question about Evie, you talked about her having a condition, mm -hmm. and then at a later stage, you talked about it being a super talent. Yes. So is that the same thing? Yes, yeah. And I suppose I've always written about people with conditions of one sort or another, often conditions that aren't visible. So I think there's... You know, it's definitely not heavy-handed with the kids' books, but there's the definite sort of mental health aspect to having a condition that no one else can see and then sort of managing to reframe it as this hmm. superpower or super talent is definitely something um, almost autobiographical with me, although, unfortunately, I can't hear what bearded dragons and dolphins and seahorses are thinking. Yeah, which is, which is a, wonderful, it's a wonderful idea, and even though... You know, we've seen Doctor Doolittle mm. and Harry Potter could speak to snakes. Mm. It's still a wonderful idea, the, the basic proposition that you have of being able to communicate to your dog. Or, I mean, quite, I'm not quite sure about the, the dragon, but uh, it's enchanting even for grown-ups right at the beginning. I think uh, just as the whole prospect yeah. of being able to talk to animals and think to animals is wonderful. And the question I had was with the animals is whether you just go for your purely domestic animals and you just have your goldfish, your dog and your cat or whether you have your wild animals so you can have all the exciting stuff like your lions and snakes and your poison dart frogs and things like that. And, you know, so and I, I didn't want to pick either or. So I, I basically my criteria for the story was to try and find a way to weave your household pets with your big jungle animals. You need to have threat in there. Of course, we all like a little bit of peril, a little bit of jeopardy. Tell us about Mortimer J. Mortimer. I, I, it's just so fun, especially in a kid's book, I think, to write the baddie. And I, I honestly think it's um, the best thing about writing children's books for me is to come up with a really straightforwardly sinister character which you, you've really, I mean, I do it a little bit with my adult fiction, but I feel like with kids' books, you're almost given a sort of green card to do that. And Mortimer J. Mortimer is, again, something to do with his uh, her mother's death, and it, it traces all the way back to her roots in the... Um, jungle, possibly, and he's... He, you don't have to caveat, you know, you can say... <laughs> Something to do with the past in the jungle. Something to do with the past in the jungle. And he also is um, has the same ability as Evie um, to a greater degree. So she, it's her sort of nemesis. When you say straightforwardly evil, I, th I think that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because later on you develop, I suppose, shades of mm. 
dark and, and light. But in these books, you want, I don't want Mortimer J. Mortimer to be that subtle. You know, it, yeah. it's quite clear yeah. who we're dealing with. Yes. But I think even the most straightforwardly evil, two-dimensionally evil people, uh, it's sometimes interesting to not necessarily give them a, a backstory that justifies that, but to give them a worldview where they almost feel like they're doing, but they justify it to themselves. So he kind of feels like he's saving the world by destroying the world. But um, yeah, he, he is a straightforward villain. Um, Ecology and uh, do people still use that word? Eco, I suppose, is the is, is kind of more acceptable. But there is very much that sense of uh, looking after the world as part of this. Did that did that come from your daughter? Or would that or would you have written it that way anyway? Um, yeah, it's sort of where my head was at, really, uh, and a, a lot of people, and it's been very much at the forefront of. Um, our, Lots of people's thinking, I suppose, particularly in the last two years. Um, and, yeah, I wanted to weave in. I think for, if I was writing a book about animals, it would it would make perfect sense to weave in the environmentalist themes, which are particularly pertinent with the younger generation who are going to sort of face the consequences more, more than we are. Um, and, yeah, I was writing it at the same time as sort of taking our kids on the sort of climate strikes in Brighton and things like that. So it was very much um, a thing I was conscious of as I was writing. Well, and what are they, I mean, uh, without wishing to, to pry too much, but what kind of conversations do they have with you then? If you're taking your children on the climate strikes, what are they saying? Do they Are they blaming you and your generation? Are they wondering, you know, this is a nice day off school? Or <laughs> what, what do they say? Um, yeah, I mean, with them, because they're still quite young, I, I try, try not to go into this too depressing um, version of events and it's more about um, you know watching David Attenborough programs and um, caring for the world and loving animals and looking after insects and, and understanding that everything is connected and that we need to e even those sort of nasty bees and wasps and um, flies that come into our house we, we've still got to be kind to them because we're still dependent on them and that um, there's lots we can do. And actually, for simple act, rather than just giving them loads of information about climate change and all these 10-year warnings to pull everything around, I think actually, when even if it's just as simple as making placards and um, teaching them about recycling and all of that stuff, um, it actually makes them feel like they can deal with that level of worry because they're doing something about it. So I feel like there's no point giving children extra worries about things that they can't do anything about, but, you know, engaging so, them. So you're teaching them Gaia theory? Really. Um, yeah, yeah. A bit of James Lovelock without, yeah, getting too heavy about I it. I interviewed him a couple of times. The most astonishing man. I would think he's about to be 100 or he's just turned 100. The event of Gaia theory. Yes. And uh, a really amazing man. May we all be as bright and as sharp as we get to 100 as no, James Lovelock. And he was such a sort of on the margins outsider. I mean, everyone had heard, heard, heard of his theory, but the theory is increasingly becoming science. It's becoming sort of, you know, sensible mainstream stuff. Although I have, I have to say, I mean, I, we want this to be an encouraging conversation in the, in the spirit <laughs> of your book. He, he, one of his things is, I mean, unless he's changed his mind, he said, we've already gone past the tipping point. Mm. As far as making a difference is concerned, I don't want to. 
yes. put a dampener on things. And, but, and, that's, that's, and, <laughs> but then I, I quoted him. So then Al Gore comes along and he does that. Uh, he does that movie. And I quoted James Lovelock to Al Gore, and Al Gore says he's got the science wrong. So you know, this is yes. it's up there for debate. It's up for, for debate, and there's some really, yeah, there's some really. Um, I've been reading about some real sort of catastrophically minded people in America who are off grid who believe we've got two years and this, that, and the other. But I, I feel ultimately, I almost compare it. I know this is taking a, a bit of a left turn from my discussion of children's literature, but I compare it a little bit to um, mental health conversations because um, I feel like there's almost a uh, suicidal kind of thinking sometimes with environmentalism where it's like, oh, the world would be better off without us. And, you know, and they, actually when you're in a st state of deep depression, that's the same sort of thinking you have. And actually, you know, we are the world. We're part of the world. We're a living thing that's a part of the world. And I don't think that sort of distinction between us and the world, even if it's done in a right-on environmentalist way, is always that helpful we have to sort of see ourselves as part of nature and um yeah i, I i'm trying to get people aware of that via the medium yeah. of eight to twelve year old fiction but it, but it sounds as though although you ha have all these different strands to the stuff that you write it's all very much connected it, you know whether it's christmas whether it's yep. staying alive whether it's uh, evie and the animals the truth pixie it it's all of a piece yeah, it's it certainly since I wrote The Humans. The Humans was the first, um, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't my first book. I'd written books before that, but The Humans was the first book by the inverted commas, new me kind of thinking, way of thinking, where you, if you're putting something out into the world, you've got to somehow try and find some use or optimism or hopefulness. It can be a very, yeah, dark kind of optimism, but you have to sort of offer the light alongside the dark. And I think since that point, I've been trying to do that because what made you what made you think that? I think weirdly depression because I had depression for a long time. Um, as you know, Simon, I um, I realised when I was recovering from that that I've been living in the most extreme state of pessimism, and that pessimism had been largely wrong you know so many of the things initially I was convinced I'd be dead at the age of 25 and I wasn't I was convinced my relationship would fall apart it didn't I'd convinced this is a, every worst case scenario um, and then you, you sort of hold on long enough to see that actually your mind might not be having the most accurate view of reality so yes obviously bad things happen in life and um, there's ups and downs but that that total pessimistic worldview of depression in my case touchwood so far didn't come to pass so um yeah in a very strange way that ex experience of depression made me hold on to optimism as a more valid perspective so did you used to catastrophize our all the time yeah i and mean do you catastrophize I mean, yeah, I say uh, I say depression. It was depression, but it was anxiety and depression. So I had initially I had panic disorder. So you are—it's like the world's most nightmarish uh, creative writing course because you are imagining all the time. Your your brain is constantly imagining, but it's imagining the very worst case scenario. So you know. Every new mole is definitely going to kill you. Uh, if you've got a headache, it's a brain tumor. If, 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 if your part, wife hasn't picked up the phone, it's a car crash. Everything is, yeah, mm. totally.
Um, Matt is normally here sitting in this chair, uh, but he sent me, he said, he's got some horse thing to, to go to. Uh, so he, but he sent me his, his thoughts. A okay. horse thing? Yeah, he works with horses. Oh, yeah. uh, I never quite understand it. So uh, this is for Matt. Um, uh, Matt says, I found it funny that the dogs were the easiest to understand, but that other animals were difficult. Uh, I admired Matt's logic and not talking down to his audience. For example, very early on, we learned that Evie's mum also had her talent but was killed by a spider. That hasn't just spoilt your <laughs> reticence. Uh, if you can talk to animals, how could that be? He addresses it early on. It's important that whatever fantastical premise you connect, there must be a logic to it. I'm a big fan of Matt's writing. Uh, how to Stop Time was one of the best books on our book club and very personal. How personal was this book? Okay, so there's a number of points. First of all, the logic in, so you've come up with a fantastical world. There has to be some kind of logic, mm. though, that follows it through. Was that easy or straight or not? Um, no, it wasn't easy at all. But this was actually my hardest uh, children's book. I did have a lot of fun, but it, it was quite difficult in terms of structure. And it is creating, yeah, how it works, how the logic works. I, I, I just felt that. Personally, I, I, I think even without this ability, you, you imagine it's easier to understand a dog than, say, a cat, and certainly than an, an, an iguana or a bearded dragon. So the logic was simply me thinking, what, w what would that be like? And um, yeah, I, I'd feel like the, the species that we think we know would be the ones where the thoughts were a bit more clear in our head. I think we might, so we might have edged closer to the answer to the second point that Matt is making about this book being very personal. Mm. So that if Stopping Time was personal, it does sound as though actually all of your books yeah, are pretty so. personal. Yeah, even though they're all kind of fantasies. I'm, I write speculative fiction, I suppose. But um, I sometimes think that, that that's kind of a cover to just then explore. Yeah, I mean, isn't, I suppose, all writing slightly personal? Um but, yeah, I, I suppose there's always an, an outsider who's struggling to fit in and they've got a condition and they're working things out and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I've never been another writer, so I don't know how personal mine is compared to other people. But I suppose, I suppose the more clinical, you know, if you're writing a high-concept psychological thriller, I suppose that might not be autobiographical in the same way. I don't know, but I've never done that. What would the, you got an, an M.A.? Haven't you? Yeah. But I had to unlearn most of what I learned in my MA, to be honest with you. Sam. And it was an MA in? English literature. Right. Okay. So why did you have to unlearn it? I just became incredibly pretentious after, <laughs> after my year. I mean, it's no disrespect to the people who taught me at Leeds University. But it just... It, Maybe just a little. A little. <laughs> it was... Literally a year before I had a breakdown, so I'm not blaming uh, having a master's degree as a sort of mental health risk, but it uh, it made me almost consider story and plot and things like characterization as sort of little trivial side dishes to the main event of style and meaning and all of that but you know it it, it's, it was kind of nonsense and you know, it was dr drowning <laughs> drowning in postmodernism and and it just literally took all the joy out of um books you know I, as a teen i just sort of gobbled up james herbert stephen king everything else and then you're suddenly told plot oh, no. character yeah, yeah yeah 
absolutely. And so, and what happened actually after I became ill in recovery, books were a big part of my recovery. Children's books were a big part of my recovery. Winnie the Pooh was a big part of my recovery. Um, you know, whatever it was. But what I liked was beginnings, middles and ends in that kind of order. And I, I, I you know, the things that I've been subconsciously taught to be snobby about. I suddenly understood the value of it. And I think part of it is if you're stuck in a um, in a bad place uh, and you feel like it's not going to change, then you actually want stories about change. You know, you, stories, are even, even stories with unhappy endings, they're about change. And we like to believe in change and redemption and hope and all of those things. A Boy Called Christmas is being turned in the process of being turned into a movie. Uh, what yeah. was so? Where are we in that, and what was all that like? It's all been totally surreal. And I, you know, speaking of me being an optimist, I'll now say, apart from with films, because I've had almost every single one of my books options. I've had so many close things with scripts being finished and not happen. My first ever novel over ten years ago was optioned by Brad Pitt. Um, a script was written by Taika Waititi. Wow. I was flown out to. LA, it was all happening, and I, I couldn't tell anyone about it. And, and then nothing happens, and that lingered on for years. And since that point, I was like, oh, "Yeah, another option. Nothing's going to happen." Okay, and so it, so it was with a boy called Christmas. But then they actually said, "Oh no, we've greenlit it. We've got the cast. Uh, you know, we're filming in Prague from February, so it's it's happening." And then they actually flew me out, and I saw the set, which they've actually built. So they're not totally relying on CGI. They've got a, a, an elf village that they've made, like some sort of Scandinavian thing. And, um, yeah, I was on set. I saw Sally Hawkins, Maggie Smith, um, Jim Broadbent, all kinds of... That's a great cast straight away. Kristen Wiig and, yeah, other people, TBA. And um, What does that mean? I know what it means. <laughs> what do you mean? It means... You know that there are people, but you can't tell me. Um, it means that voices means voices basically they've filmed all the actors and they haven't is, is James L. Jones part of the deal he's Father not. Christmas <laughs> it's the circle of life should be yeah no he's got a great voice um, does no. it Dan do you, do you think that makes you write in a different way because obviously the process is, is completely different but is there a, a little light that goes on in your head that thinks oh, I know what this would look like you know, I've got good relationships then with this production company. If they want my next one, then mm. I could imagine this happening. Yes. I mean, I had nothing to do with the script. Um, it's been written by Old Parker, and it's a very good script. But I, I was quite thankful. Old Parker, who did, was responsible for Mamma Mia 2. Mamma Mia and 2 the and the thing. exotic Marigold Hotel films. And, um, yeah, he brings the right warm-hearted approach to the project. But... Yeah, I was quite happy to take a back seat and not get too involved. I think for my own sanity, it was quite good to just sort of like have a little bit of distance from this. I mean, they've been very inclusive and, you know, I went on set three times and um, my children are extras in it. Oh, ex are you in it? No, I didn't push for that. I, I, I went for my children instead. I don't think anyone wants to see me as an elf, to be honest, Simon. It's a bit not. of CGI would help. But <laughs> <laughs> well, my children are elves. They had their ears measured and um, they've got their... How cool is that? Uh, yeah, they're in the elf school. They probably school. think, all right, Dad, then you're okay. <laughs> yeah. as, and speaking of elves, the Truth Pixie, I just mentioned it at the beginning um, of the conversation... So this is the Truth Pixie Goes to School. And the one thing I really 
loved about this is as someone who changed schools a lot, mm. the horror of changing school, not just that normal primary to secondary transition, which everybody yep. does, but when you move house mm. and then you have to start school at a time that no one else has to start school. The horror it was, really, it was really captured, I think, perfectly in there. Did you do that a few times? I yeah, did, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was awful. Yeah, I did it at eight and again at 10 and so you know quite young ages to do it and yeah I mean but basically the truth is it goes to school I suppose you know it sounds really cheesy but they're kind of self-help books for seven-year-olds and truth is goes to school is a lot about the issues you face at school with friendships and bullies and fitting in and how much of yourself you have to sacrifice to be popular and all of those sort of things yeah that, that outsider feeling and letting your friends down and all of that. And, um, yeah, I never have more fun than writing um, The Truth Pixie. I think it's the best character I've done in terms of, like, uh, I, I sort of totally, it's an easy character to understand and I can just sort of run with it. And um, The Truth Pixie herself, you know, she's like a little mini therapist to the human girl, Arda, but she also has her own issues and problems but on the subject of Evie and the animals just two just two uh, remaining questions I mentioned it's been illustrated by Emily Gravitt do you work alongside the illustrator do you send her all the text how, d- how does that work with the collaboration well in the case of Emily she was totally Callengate came to me and said you know have you had any ideas for illustrator and Emily Gravitt was absolutely my first choice because it's animals and she's so brilliant at animals. And we've got, her, I think her first ever put picture book was a book called Wolves, which we had on our kids' shelves since they were babies. And it's just beautiful. So I, I, Emily Gravitt was my first choice with Chris Mould and the Truth Pixie. But I didn't really work, work alongside her. We had a meeting together. I've only really met her about twice. And I mean, I'm... You know, I think I'm a reasonably accommodating sort of person, but I'm not really a natural collaborator because the way I work is I just sort of go away into my attic metaphorically and just sort of write the thing and um, then fire it off. And I'm not really a back and forth kind of person. So, um, yeah, and Emily works in the same way where she sort of just goes away and does her thing once she's given the brief. With Chris, it's a bit different now because we've worked on Chris Mould, who does the Christmas books and the Truth Pixie books. Um, I feel a bit guilty about Chris actually because Chris does far more work on the Truth Pixie books than I do. I do like two weeks work and he does about six months of illustrations. Right, that's not it? quite fair. It's not it? fair. No, I'm a bad person. But um, yeah, no, Chris. Just give him all your money. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, well, we've got, he's got he's he's very happy with how things are. Simon, I assure you, I'm not. Crying. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not genuinely not crying. So. Uh, so that's how the process works. So we started this conversation with where Evie and the animals came from, and you were talking about your daughter saying a girl and animals. So mm. presumably she was the first to read it. She or one of the first. Yes, she was, after my editor. And I, I, even as I was going, I was testing things out on her and Lucas. It's nice to have your own in-house focus group. And what do they say? say? Rubbish, Dad terrible no they said it was good i mean generally there whenever they criticize me is if it's if it's gone a little bit too dark or you know death and stuff they don't you know i can't imagine why they would think that (laughs) (laughs) well exactly and also being gloomy yeah and also my 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 son is even a little bit hesitant with the sort of harry potter level of of darkness He, he he he's happy on his wimpy kids and all of that 
Okay, so you got a thumbs up. I got, I got, right. I got the thumbs up. If it is actually compared to all, all my previous books, I'd say you know there is darkness in it, but it's not. Uh, my first ever kids book was a book that not many people read called Shadow Forest, where literally the parents get crushed by logs falling off a lorry in the first <laughs> chapter. Happy Christmas, kids. <laughs> You can't get rid of the parents, Simon. Of You've course, got... there are ways and means, though, of course. So the Matt Haig year is complete then. Uh, Truth Pixie goes to school uh, out in August. <coughs> Evie and the Animals, uh, which is which is out now. And that's it. You haven't got anything else coming out this year, have you? No. 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 But, but I'm, be... I'm trying to write a novel for grown-ups. But it, I, it, I, it's, I, it's a struggle starting it. I don't know why. I, I, I'm in that sort of tortured artist mode, which I like to get into. Now. Okay. And then A Boy Called Christmas, the movie, comes out next year. Hopefully, well, but it might. Unless it all falls apart no. <laughs> and the <laughs> whole thing <just laughs> never happens. That's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, tw- it's 2021. It's a possible. Okay. To get Netflix on board, they, they had to say 2021, but they're trying to bring it to 2020. As soon as James L. Jones is available. Yeah, that's the deal. Uh, Matt, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Simon. A pleasure. Thanks to Matt Haig for coming in and uh, talking about his many books. You will uh, have noticed that he has so many projects that he needs a bit more space. So to make way for that, we are doing another Q&A session with him. And if you look out for that pod, it will be available very, very shortly in a few days, I would imagine. Uh, you can get in touch. Tell us what you think. Tell us about the books you are enjoying at the moment and maybe some summer tips. That would be a lovely thing. So if you get in touch, we are Books of the Year at yahoo.com. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.